So we have this prophetic writing. We're going to look through, as Matt said, the whole of um, the first four verses of Isaiah 61. If you've not read them, um, honestly, go ahead and read them again. If you've not read the whole part, the whole of that chapter is just beautiful. I feel like I've been given a total gift in preaching this morning. I was thinking with my kids about some of the other things I've preached about on other occasions. And I think the beheading of John the Baptist was my possibly my, my hardest preach. But this has to be one of the best um, passages to have been given. So I'm hoping I'm not going to, I do it justice. Um, mm. But um, so we have um, this passage that Jesus himself defines his ministry on. And we'll see in Luke 4, we've got Jesus is baptised, he's tempted in the wilderness, and then he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit to start his ministry. He goes amongst the synagogues. He starts in Nazareth, where he was born, um, where he was raised, and people actually end up rejecting him. But he starts in this, he sort of starts his ministry by picking up this scroll and reading from Isaiah 61 and reading these verses. And um, it's, there's this beautiful moment in it where... Um, and this is a passage that the Jews who are hearing this would know so well. And they've heard it before. And Jesus reads it out. And then he says at the end, he says, what well, it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began his whole ministry by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus himself completely defined his ministry in these verses so they are so important for us and they capture so much of the heart of the gospel proclaiming good news to the poor and that's not just physical poverty that is in um everyone i've just noticed a little note for my matt t can everyone hear me give me a thumbs up if you can Okay, that was just a mic drop moment. Okay, okay, I'll keep going. Um, so yeah, we have this. Um, so this is a capturing the heart of the gospel. It's proclaiming good news for the poor. And as I said, this is not just physical poverty, although God is desperate for the poor. He also is put desperate for us in that moment when we are poor in spirit, when we have what we don't need, when we lack. And we are sometimes in that place. And I think we're in that place in this season where we just need we really need. And so this is good news for the poor, however we describe ourselves. Um, and it's healing, it's freedom, it's comfort and joy, it's provision. And it's this beautiful promise that we're going to look at today that God will crown us with beauty instead of ashes. This was the testimony of Jesus' life, that his suffering, that his death, that his resurrection achieved beauty from ashes. And when we gather as church family, we're reminded of who God is, who we are called to be, and we are sent out in the world so we can share that today. And so I believe that God wants to do two things through this passage, really simple. Firstly, I believe that he wants to talk to us about what it looks like to bring beauty from ashes in our own lives. And then I think he wants to say, go do that in the world around us. We have this invitation to call out beauty from ashes in the world around. And just a little bit of background for this passage. We've got um, Isaiah, huge Old Testament prophet, absolutely fascinating. And, um, sorry, <laughs> over-enthusiastic, over-talking already. Um, so G Isaiah is prophesying to people in Israel in captivity. And they were in mourning. They use these kind of words of mourning, grieving, of despair. This passage identifies with them in that it sort of talks about it in those sort of senses. And then we start to hear these other messages, this other language of life, of hope, this beautiful exchange to wedding imagery. It's not just 
that God takes away the despair and sadness, but also comes and brings something beautiful instead. And this is the essence of the gospel, that Jesus' death brings life. Jesus' death brings this exchange. And this is what Isaiah was prophesying about to the people then. And he was prophesying about Jesus. And Jesus frames his ministry on this passage. So the Israelites were in exile. They were refugees in a foreign land. And I say that and we kind of, you know, we, we read this and they are, you know. But actually, what does that really look like to be far away from all the things that you love and that you call your own? And in particular, the thing that was very difficult for the um, Israelites is that they were separated not only from their land and from Jerusalem, the city, but from the temple. The temple was destroyed. And they believed that was the place where God dwelt. That was where the presence of God was. And actually, if you read through um, some of their kind of the morning psalms, for example, I was looking at Psalm 137, where the Israelites are like angry and they're sad and they are just desperately mourning mostly the presence of God they're at their own situation but also the presence of God and um, Isaiah comes to them and says God will bring you out of exile God will bring you back to the land of Israel but as in everything in the Old Testament it's always pointing to the new we always read the Old Testament in the light of the new and so we see in this passage that God is doing something bigger something better something fuller through the person of Jesus who is also prophesying about that God has come to redeem all mankind, not just the Israelites. That when Jesus comes back again at the end of the world, he will restore everyone back into relationship with God, with each other, with land, with creation, but with God. And we see that in the end of the Bible, the final prophecy of the Bible, Revelation 21, and those beautiful passages, where again we see this kind of mourning um, and, and sort of grieving into celebration. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, again that reference to Jerusalem, that presence of God, coming down from heaven, um, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, again wedding imagery. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, this is just so beautiful, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, not just in that place in Jerusalem, not just in those moments, at all times, he will dwell with us. He will be, they will be his people and God himself will be with them, their God. And this is, is again, this kind of um, looking hard in the face of mourning and sadness and says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He himself will wipe away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And we live in that in-between time between Jesus having come and Jesus coming again, that fulfillment of that prophecy. But for now, in this passage, Isaiah was preaching to these people in a deep despair. So deep that it felt like they were mourning something. Their home, their way of life, the presence of God. And um, I've been looking up kind of Jewish mourning and it's, it's quite different from British mourning. Um, I think we mourn in, in quite a sort of quiet, reserved way. Um, they went all out there. They would pay professional mourners to come and wail loudly outside their home for up to seven days. They would often tear their clothes. They would put ashes on their forehead. That's why we get this reference, beauty, kind of beauty from ashes. And um, for us too, we are in a time of corporate mourning and grief. Whether that's just one end just feeling a little bit unsettled or whether that's right to the other end. For some of those literally grieving those lost to COVID and there's kind of, you know, so many lives lost all over the world. 
But for many of us, it's literally just that day to day. We're grieving, seeing people, physical touch of family and friends. We just grieve that's the normal routine of going to work and school and getting out and about other than our one time a day for exercise. Um, we just grieve that chance to plan a much needed break. Um, for many people, the, the sort of certainty of their job, they're, they're grieving that because we just don't know. Um, you know, for many of us, like her homeschooling and juggling, we just feel like we're just like constantly on this, like it's such a juggle and we don't, don't know when it's going to end. And this sense for many people that our world has shrunk literally to most of our day in one room and most of our interactions on one screen. And when we lose those things, it is a kind of death. Um, there's other peculiarities of Jewish mourning that we seem to have adopted, I think, as well. Apparently, traditional grooming stopped, washing, cutting of hair, wearing nice clothing. And I think that's definitely something that's going on in our house. There's definitely been some people we've had to really persuade into the shower at least once a week. Um, there's definitely been occasions where quite a few of us have um, even... <laughs> In an attempt to continue to wear pyjamas for as long as possible, we've put clothes on top of pyjamas to go out to the shops, because apparently, as you know, that's okay. And um, this is definitely the first time I've changed out of sports kit for hmm, since the last time I was on a, a Zoom call that I was, uh, you know, <laughs> playing a part of. So, um, yes, but... But seriously, we are in a time of unsettledness and a grief of some sorts and we long for hope and we long for joy. And so these words are poignant to us today because God is saying and Jesus is saying when he quotes these, I can bring beauty from your ashes. When it feels like all around you is death, I come to bring hope and lives, um, hope and life into your lives. And um, as I was thinking about this, I've, um, I don't know if any of you have heard of someone called um, Corrie Ten Boom. Um, she's a bit of a hero, kind of quiet hero, really. She was a Christian um, in um, Holland. Um, had a, she was part of a Christian family in Holland um, at the time of the Second World War. And as Jewish people started to be taken away into concentration camps, her family, a massive like, sort of um, danger to themselves, basically hid as many Jewish people as they could and helped them to escape. And, and finally, someone dobbed them in. The whole of their family also were then sent, dispersed and sent to different concentration camps. And Connie and her sister, Betsy, went to um, a, a sort of awful concentration camp, Ravensbrück. And, and Betsy, Connie's sister, actually died at the sort of brutality, really, of the regime there, and in particular at the guards. Um, and yet, um, Connie was like, just felt, after she survived this experience. And afterwards, she just felt God just say to her, just go share your story go share forgiveness, go share love, go share truth, go share hope. And she did that. She proclaimed beauty from ashes just by sharing her life. That was all she did. And God just took that and did something extraordinary. And um, I just want to read a tiny bit from her story. Um, this is the, the second of her books, Tramp for the Lord. Um, a, just a little tiny patch of one of her interactions. It was 1947. I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives to a church in Munich. It was the truth they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed out land. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them to the deepest sea, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions in a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, collected their bags, left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a flashback. 
blue uniform, visor cap, skull and crossbones, it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man, I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. But now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I had spoken so glibly about forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember me, one prisoner amongst thousands of women? But I remembered that guard, the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, but since that time I've become a Christian, I know that God's forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, and I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein, said the guard. And again, his hand came out, will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had been forgiven, again and again, and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. How could he have rose her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a will, it's an act of the will, and will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realised it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and Corrie's story has a has a sort of a, a, an extra level of poignancy for me because... Um, Three years um, after this, she did a rally in Bermuda where my grandma was living. And it was one of those 20 rallies. I mean, how she just, you know, spoke to so many people where my grandma Madiris um, gave her life to God and became a Christian. And um, actually, grandma was... She was probably one of the most forgiving people that I've ever met, um, despite having lots of different trials in her life and people that really let her down. And she never spoke badly of anyone. And I don't think that's a sort of coincidence when someone who's been led to faith by someone whose message is of forgiveness, who um, has that spirit upon them. And choosing to bring God's crown of beauty, choosing God's crown of beauty from the ashes of this terrible experience, it didn't just bring meaning to Corrie's life or to the God that she forgave. But beyond that, it then got truth and hope and love to so many different people because Corrie just did what she was asked to do, which is just share her story and it's this beautiful picture of how God works in and through us to bring beauty from ashes what we can do when we surrender to him he does what he can supernaturally do to change the situation by the power of the Holy Spirit often that is slower than we hope for we always want things like this sometimes it happens like that but often it's slower but often there's also greater effects than we can possibly imagine. I don't think Corrie died knowing the number of people's lives that she affected. But she, she millions of people um, have been affected by her. And I stand in that spiritual heritage today, um, 70 years later.
Um, and God can bring beauty from ashes in our lives. Any part of our lives that we have hurt, even if it was, if it's as terrible as it was for Connie, for Connie, if um, if it's as awful as the things that that God had done, whatever's happened to us, wherever we feel a sense of loss or mourning, God can bring beauty if we allow Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, it's, it's an interesting one, this kind of concept of um, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. I often find when I pray for people, God obviously gives me pictures. And the, the reoccurring picture I have, and I kind of think, oh, here we are again, I'll share this one. But it's this sense of like people sitting with a crown on their heads. And I think it's because it's in that moment that we, I almost glimpse something of how God sees people, how he sees each of us, which is he sees us in our fullest potential. He sees us in our most and our best self. He sees us in how we are and can be in him. Beauty, a crown of beauty from ashes. But I don't think it just stops there. It doesn't just stop with us, like with Chloe. Actually, it goes, it can be so much bigger because um, we have a role in calling beauty from ashes and the people and the and situations around us, particularly in this time where people are so longing for hope. As we follow Jesus, we become his hands, we become his feet, we start to hear things and see things like he does. And we have his voice to call out beauty from ashes in the world around us. And as we pray to become like him and for his kingdom come, things start to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're honest, we're kind of going against um, a, a kind of, it's a countercultural tide to be like that. I feel like a lot of, not everything, but much in social media or negative news cycles or partisan politics or just our human nature of just the fact that we just love to gossip, that we um, favour the outside of things and, you know, how things are on the outside rather than looking at things on the inside, that sometimes we struggle to understand and embrace indifference. All of these things can drive us to criticise and to judge and be negative in the way that we think and we talk and we write and we respond. Um, but God calls us to something else. As I said before, God made the world by his words and we are made in his image. Our worlds too have power to heal or destroy, to bring life or death. We all have examples of this in our own lives. There's a moment that someone has spoken a truth over us that emboldens us to be who we've been called to be, to be our best selves, to be who God calls us to be. Or sadly, those moments that someone has spoken something over us and in a negative moment, we just go back to that place of reliving that thing that's been said that holds us back. And just kind of getting like super practical about it, it's just like, what would it look like for us to pray for or to pop a card for the door, or buy a coffee for that person that we find so difficult, that person that's hurt us, rather than avoiding them or just speaking badly about them to others. Um, and I, I totally speak to myself in this. I feel very challenged by this myself as well. What would it look like for us to pray for a politician or a legislation that we hear about in the news that we disagree with, rather than just feeling angry and posting something negative online? What would it look like for us to consistently pray over an area or a road or we hear of things happening that we don't like rather than just bad mouthing and saying, oh, that's, you know, just dodgy and avoiding it? How do we hold this tension of being real about difficulty but choosing to speak truth and hope and joy? And But there is already so much of this going on, even amongst all the suffering of COVID. We see those moments of beauty from ashes, like this concern for our elderly and vulnerable that I don't think has been characteristically cult uh, part of our culture. 
um, until more recently, an appreciation for people who are working in our shops, who are driving our buses, who are working in the NHS, like all the lovely like community support groups set up, food banks, the small acts of kindness that we see, this entrepreneurial spirit of businesses who have pivoted what they're doing at great expense to, to try and not only survive, but thrive and serve communities in this time. Or even just the way that the scientists have worked together to find and test a vaccine that, if you read anything about it, that would normally take a decade. And the way that, like, for example, like the Oxford vaccine is being offered to developing nations at cost price rather than a profit. Something is changing. God is bringing beauty from ashes. And I see it, um, I have my sort of tangible thing is I'm a real person of like, um, I like praying as I walk, I'm a real person in place, I'm a real visual person. And my, the other thing that sort of like, caught my imagination in this was, um, I don't know if any of you go to Windsor Park, I currently run around it at sunrise almost every day because it's my way of staying sane in this kind of crazy season. And um, at the, bo- the top end of the park, um, the opposite end from the tube, there's um, near Endymion Gate, if you ever used to drive to the park. Often people have barbecues down there. There's um, there's sort of like, a, there was a there's sort of little children's play area. It's not massively well used, um, because the big ones at the top. And basically, there's like, the previously used to be quite a lot of, like usually young men kind of like doing like pull ups and all that sort of thing on this kind of children's play area, and um, and and you know, it's basically that sort of ended up just sort of being like kind of an outdoor gym type thing. And then event, I started to see this like new thing being built up next to it. And actually, the, the park actually provided for a proper outdoor gym with like all of that same stuff, but even better, all kind of made out of steel next to this children's player. So that's been sort of left for the kids. And they've got this other place that's like designated outdoor gym. Brilliant. Really well used. And um, I was walking past it and I saw there was a sign on that said, as I said, this is the Steel Warriors Gym. I just loved this. Um, and... It's, I'm some, I just I feel really passionately about um oh anyway sorry I'm going ahead of myself anyway so I looked at this sign steel warriors gym and the notice says this this gym was made from steel that was taken from knives that were taken off the street to prevent youth violence all the material from this whole gym was made from steel from um from knives off the streets because we believe that um this this steel is to build up bodies and not to destroy them and I just thought, this is beautiful. This is not, that I'm, as far as I'm aware, this isn't like a sort of like Christian charity or anything. This is just, for me, it was like a glimpse of like kingdom come. And, and I see the same when I, I don't know if you've heard of like the knife angel. It does look a little bit scary, but the whole concept is completely beautiful. Look it up later. Artist Alfie Bradley created a sculpture from 100,000 knives taken off the streets of Britain as a monument against violence and oppression violence and aggression and um this is not to belittle the effects of knife crime this is not to say because someone's like built a gym and made a sculpture that that makes it okay or that that takes away the pain or that that solves all of the issues um um, because we know this is an issue even just for this week on cali road this is this is a really present issue that we need to be praying into but we also need to have those eyes of faith that look at these things when there's something good that comes from something awful and say wow this is a moment of beauty from ashes and just to continue to pray into that thing, Lord Jesus, would there be no more of knife crime, um, not just in Finsbury Park, but right across this nation. And would um, these things like these gyms be testimony to that? We pray that over this area. So we are in this kind of moment, I think, really, of ashes. 
of, of different, you know, at worst unsettled, at best, you know, at best people are feeling unsettled, at worst it's, it's deep mourning. And bringing um, beauty from ashes is not to belittle the suffering. It's not to say it doesn't matter or it doesn't, you know, that we don't sit in it. But it is actually to say that we have good news. That in this moment we believe, we worship, we are loved by, we are filled with the Holy Spirit from a God that cares deeply about suffering because he stepped into itself from the cross. And that he has the power to bring beauty from ashes by the power of the Holy Spirit.